Hey, everybody. Hi. Um, last week, we said that Hebrews 13 is very much this uh, transition from, really, it starts in Hebrews 12, uh, this transition from this incredibly rich, amazing theology that Hebrews has laid out about Jesus, about what's true about the world, about who God is, about what that means, about what it means to be human. And he takes that very, very high theology, that very rich theology, and he very much lands it on the ground of our everyday lives and says, okay, so what? In light of all of this, how then should we live? And really what he takes us to are some of the basics of Christian faithfulness. He says, um, treat each other like brothers and sisters. Pursue unity uh, as the people of God. Show hospitality, especially to strangers, especially to the other. Be especially generous uh, in the world. He says, you know, Hold marriage in honor. Uh, don't per, uh, reject the love of money, but instead be generous. And what we saw last week is that while all of that sounds, sounds like kind of fundamental, uh, the ABCs of, of living as a Christian in the world, all of it, by the way that he lays it out, is deeply rooted in these incredible realities that he's been writing about in, in the first, you know, 80, 90% of this letter. And so we see that theology and life, that doctrine and ethics, that these things have to go together. We said last week that this is the, the common teaching of Jesus himself. This is the common teaching throughout the New Testament. That faith, that mere mental assent, that, that agreeing that, yes, I believe that these things are true, without a transformed life, without any evidence of that showing up in our behavior, in how we treat one another, in how we interact with the world, in how we handle things like money and our bodies, that that is a, a misunderstanding of a, of a deep integration that's meant to characterize Christian faith, that these things must go together, that these realities are lived out realities or there are no realities at all. And we will see that <clears throat> continue in the passage that Michelle just read for us. So just to remind you, the very last thing that we talked about last week was this statement right in the middle of all of this practical teaching that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's the very last thing that was said. And I think that that sets up this first verse that we have here. And so in the midst of all of this, why, why right in the middle of all of this practical teaching say Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Well, it goes with the first half of what we talked about last week by saying that there is consistency in the character of Jesus, that no matter the uniqueness of the culture that we find ourselves in, no matter the uniqueness of the particular time, that we find ourselves in, no matter the uniqueness of our personal lives and narratives and stories and challenges and brokenness and, and sinfulness, that Jesus is consistent in his, in his character. He is consistent in the grace that he offers us, regardless of all of those factors. He is consistent in the forgiveness that he offers us in, in spite of all of those factors. He is consistent in what he asks from us. And the things that he values do not change because times change, because people 
change, because even cultures change, that Jesus is reliable in the midst of all that. Now, here's the beautiful thing about Jesus, that while his character is utterly consistent, while what he values, while what he says is necessary for the the thriving of human life, is consistent always, that doesn't mean that the way that Jesus comes to us, that the way that Jesus interacts with different cultures and times and stories is the same in some kind of robotic, predictable way. This is the unique power of the gospel, is that it comes into every culture, every time, every story, and it is consistent in certain ways. It is consistent in its deepest values, and yet its response in those places, the way that it brings forgiveness, the way that it changes hearts, the way that it calls forth that faithfulness looks different. And this is one of the most unique things about the Christian worldview in general, is that many others think Eastern religions or or religion like Islam, it comes in and demands a certain kind of cultural garb. It demands a, a, a certain kind of conformity in terms of what a life looks like. And yet Christianity has this consistently, but it's able to take on the culture. This is why Christianity is so uniquely a global religion and goes into every culture. And as many theologians and, and, and great Christian thinkers over time have said, that there is no culture in which Christianity is not welcome. There's no culture in which Christianity cannot move into that culture and answer its questions and solve some of its tensions. And yet it is equally true that there's no culture in which Christianity comes and that culture is not made uncomfortable in certain ways too. It has this embrace and challenge wherever it goes. And so Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's consistent. His values don't change. And yet the way that that shows up in a community like ours, central New Jersey, 2021, in the midst of COVID, in the midst of political unrest and social and racial unrest and all of these things, right? Christianity is perfectly capable. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Christianity does not need to bow under the uniqueness of what we're going through. It can show up here. It has shown up here. It is actively showing up in our church and moving. Baptism, right, that we did last week, bears evidence to that, that God is on the move in the midst of these things. And yet it also wants to challenge us. It wants to challenge those cultural, social realities. It wants to speak into them. It is not intimidated by them, though it will speak truth to those things. That's what it means that Jesus is the same yesterday today and forever. And so the very next thing that he says, getting into our passage, do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Let me deal with the last part there. What's that foods deal? Is he just hating on on cuisine or something? Is he hating on foodies out there? No, this is almost certainly a technical term for the particular kinds of teachings that these people, that, that the, the audience that this is written to, were struggling with. This is probably referring to the ritual meals 
um, of, the, of the Jewish system at that time, which uh, were likely stand-ins for, for the entire way of life that the vast majority of these readers had come out of in order to embrace faithfulness to Jesus. And so in saying, it's better to be strengthened by grace than by foods, he's saying, look, what, what you now have access to in Christ, the grace that is available in him, the moving of the Spirit in your life, working from the inside out to transform you, to actually work at the level of your desires, the grace that covers all of your sin once and for all in Jesus, not in a repeated way like in the old covenant system that you know a lot of the first half of this letter is looking at, and never fully, never completely, such that you could never confidently approach God's presence. All of that has been done away with in Christ. Once for all, you're now boldly allowed to approach the presence of God, the throne of grace, to receive help in time of need, assured that you are acceptable in His presence. All of that grace is far more sustaining, is far superior in its sustenance than the thing that you're tempted to return to, than the thing that you've been called out of. And yet, as we've said throughout Hebrews, we have to remember the reason why we're even in this letter, which is we have all kinds of evidence in this letter that, that this was written to a group of people in a season much like the one that we're in. Very confusing, disorienting, difficult, exhausting season. Probably not less so than us, Probably infinitely more so. You're talking about a community that has watched people, friends, family members, leaders in the church be dragged away because of their faith. The kinds of things that we fear are actively happening in a place like Afghanistan right now. Right? This is written to weary Christians. This is written to Christians whose temptation to go back is no petty thing. It's an understandable thing. It's probably a survival thing for many of them. He's saying the grace that you have on offer is better. And so don't do this. Don't be led astray by diverse and strange teachings there. And what he's saying there is, look, there will always be ways out, philosophies that arise that seem to be able to have their cake and eat it too when it comes to Christian faithfulness and comfort and security. There will always be philosophies that relieve the tension of what it means to be a faithful Christian in a particular place and time and scenario. And he uses the, the image that the rest of the New Testament, kind of in so many different places, I was looking through this this week, uses, is this idea of being led away. And really the, the idea there is, is uh, kind of, to use more oldish English, like cast about. Uh, this is the same term that Paul uses uh, in Ephesians 4, where he says, don't be blown around. Same, same word. Don't, don't be cast about by the winds and the waves of various doctrines, but hold fast to the sameness, to the consistency of Jesus. And I, I don't know, I, I mean, in a church like ours, um, I don't, I don't know uh, all of what those strange and diverse teachings we might be tempted to are, 
But here's what I do know they all share. They all almost inevitably share ways in which we can compromise the difficulty, the sacrifice, the pain of Christian faithfulness in order to do something that sounds Christian-y, in order to love, in order to be happy, because doesn't God want us happy? And doesn't he want other people happy? In order to be not judging, because surely we have a God who doesn't want us to judge anyone and say anything's wrong. Right? Like, and whatever's coming to your mind right now, that's probably what he's talking about. I always think of, when I think of this, I always think of Aldous Huxley. I'm sure you do too. Um, <laughs> who's, anybody know who Aldous Huxley is? Wrote a very famous book. Who's Aldous Huxley? Brave New World. Nice. Thank you, Dean, in the back. Um, Brave New World. And a uh, non-Christian guy and was, gave an interview once. And this is what he said in the interview. Atheist guy talking about why, why he rejected Christian faith. He says, The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. In other words, it's not just about is there a God or isn't there a God. It's not really the, the, the pure question going on there. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. Ultimately, every philosophy that, that we can aspire to, other than, other than Christianity, this is what the text saying, this is not what Aldous Huxley is saying, is ultimately an attempt to, to do whatever we want to do. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, this is a very sophisticated man. This is a very sophisticated guy who could probably tear apart Christian faith uh, bit by bit just at an intellectual level. But this, this is him getting real. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness, that there is no God, was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered, quite frankly, with our sexual freedom. That's the one that he names here. You can fill in the blank of whatever freedom. The supporters of this system claim that it embodied the meaning, the Christian meaning, they insist of the world. There's one admirably simple method of confusing, or confuting, sorry, uh, pushing back these people and justifying ourselves in our revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. Fill in the blank, right? An excuse to ultimately do what we want to do, and then we find something, a diverse and strange teaching, that allows us to do it. This is why, yes, we are always going to be a people who hold up the standard of the scriptures no matter what and examine and examine the kinds of things that relieve the tension of Christian faithfulness against the actual realities, not the nice half-truths of our culture like no one wants to judge, God wants me happy, love, 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 regardless, love meaning absolute freedom, right, um, to do whatever you want. This shows up in every culture. It was there 2,000 years ago. It's not a 2021 like, oh no, what's the church going to do? There's a lot of strange and diverse teachings out there. The author of Hebrews is like, yeah, this is a thing. Jesus, though, is the same yesterday, today, and for, forever. That's where faithfulness is. God, it's so quiet in here. It's hilarious. Okay, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. 
Now he starts comparing. He's saying, okay, you have, this old, you, have, you have this old way of thinking that you're tempted back to in order to relieve the, the tension of Christian faithfulness. Now he's going to say, lest you forget the whole argument of this letter, lest you forget the whole argument of what, what was probably read out as a sermon, what you have is better. In fact, you have access to something that the people that you're tempted to go back and to unite yourself have no access to. Don't forget that. You have an altar at which you can come and find strength when Christian faithfulness is really hard and find reason, find ultimate why for this crazy difficult way in which you are living that those people do not have access to. And here, uh, given the rest of the passage, it's a little hard to tell exactly what that altar is. It could, be, it could be what's normally up here, our literal altars of the Lord's Supper. You have access to the body and blood of Jesus, to ultimate cleansing and forgiveness in him. It could be the cross itself, that all of the Christian life, yes, happens at the foot of the cross, which means it's really, really hard. But guess what's going on on that cross? Death, sin, rebellion. Your own stuff is being overcome once and for all. Death is being defeated. Find me a better resource than that. Find me a superior worldview to that. Find me a superior sustenance when life is really hard, when something that seems as final as death visits your story. Find me more comfort than there is one who has overcome even death itself. Now he kind of uses uh, this, this altar language, and, and I think he, he kind of lets himself preach a little bit uh, and, and goes with the, the prevailing image here of the priests and the temple. For the body of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. He's building an argument. Just go with him. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So he uses this imagery of, of the temple, and he says there's this altar that we get to eat from that they don't have access to because we have a better sacrifice. We have a better and superior priest. We, ha we, have, we have more sure access to God. We have more confident, ultimate forgiveness and meaning than anything that this world offers. And he says, and yet, it shows up in the most unlikely of ways, both once and for all, and in our own stories. He says, I wish I could tell you that the place where that grace is found, the place where this Savior is found, was some kind of promised land, was some kind of place of ease and comfort in the midst of the chaos of this world. I wish that I could sell you what ultimately would be a bill of goods, but man, it sounds really good on the front end, which is if you just, whatever, pray hard enough, do mindfulness, meditate, read the Bible enough, life will go completely well for you. Your circumstances will all be coming up roses. He says, but unfortunately, that's not where this grace and strength is found. Unfortunately, that's not where this Savior is found. Unfortunately, that's not the way that this comes into the human life. That there is no new life apart from the old dying. 
He says, because the one who provides it himself had to go low in order to be brought high. The one who overcame death only did it by moving into death itself. You see, the, the comparison that he's making here is he says, look, the, the, the bodies that were used, the, the animals that were, and I can't go all the way back into the sacrificial system, I don't know, watch sermons from like March or whenever we started this, um, all about sacrificial But here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, animals were sacrificed in the temple. Very bloody thing, uh, kind of a, a wild thing for, for even our, our Western modern minds to imagine. But he said, these, these animals were sacrificed, and then their blood was brought into the temple and, and used. And then ultimately, at the end of the day, the bodies of these animals, which at that point would no longer be sacred things, they would be profane things. They, they, would, be, um, they would be things that were actually uh, unwelcome in the presence of God. They were, they were unclean things in, in the truest, most religious, deepest sense of the word. Those would be dragged out of the temple, and they couldn't even be put like in the, in the, in the back alley garbage. They'd have to be taken all the way outside of the camp. And again, keep in mind, he's always using imagery not from the temple necessarily, but from the tabernacle. So this idea of being brought outside the camp uh, super early in the story when God's people are on their way to the promised land, he says they'd have to be taken all the way out and be put on a heap outside the camp. The, the, the most unclean, the, the deadliest, strength. I mean, just m imagine that place in the in the entire construct of, of a city of God's people, imagine, imagine the smell of that place. Imagine the contamination of that place. Right? Like you wear a hazmat suit into that place. So do you know where the life of your creator, do you know where the life of your savior ultimately ended up? Not in some high lofty place, in the most rejected place, the most unclean place. This is where Jesus himself suffered. This is why, in, 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 and, and he's picking up, he's kind of mixing metaphors here, but, but, there, but there's, there's a conceptual overlap to why animals' bodies were taken outside the camp because that wasn't something that you wanted to see, smell, uh, taste in your mouth when you're just going about your everyday business. So too were criminals crucified outside the city because that's going to ruin Sunday dinner if it's across the street from, you know, the local Applebee's. So you put it outside the city as a warning to people coming into the city to say, this is what happens to people who mess with how we do things around here. So be warned. That's where Jesus ends up, right? I think that does two things. One, it does away with this nonsense that what Christianity fundamentally is, is, uh, is the good life and, you know, I won't quote any names of books, but these ridiculous books that are written about how Christianity is about capturing and claiming whatever you want, whatever riches you need, whatever's going to make you comfortable and secure, right? It's almost not even worth saying when you hear this kind of truth. Then what in the world was Jesus doing? No 
the world was his life? We believe he's the most fully alive, most obedient person who ever lived. And his life ended up on, on the heap outside the city. Now, we all have the audacity to say, but it's going to be amazing for me, right? Does, okay, that's the first thing it does. It dispels that idea. But here's what it also does. It says that in the actual realities of life, that no one escapes the actual realities of a fallen world in your own sinfulness and rebellion, in the messed upness of the culture around us, in the tragedies that come into every life. And if you haven't had one, I remember being young enough that someone said, if you've never had a tragedy, just wait. And I remember saying, I really hope that's not true. I'm telling you, and I'm not some old wise sage who's seen it all, but I'm old enough to know that's true and I've lived it now. And you've lived it. And we've lived it corporately as a church. The other lesson of Jesus suffering outside the camp is in that reality. That's where God often most shows up. That's where he loves to dwell. He's not scared of that place. Jesus didn't come, right, with, with a, oh gosh, this is not a political statement. I love, I believe in masks and all those things, right? But he didn't come over with a mask on his face saying, I don't want to touch any of the ugh of human existence, right? He didn't come in a hazmat suit saying, keep me away from that stuff, right? Isn't this what you would expect God to do? If God showed up today, where do you picture him going? Most of us have an image of him dwelling with the powerful and the rich and chilling and exerting power in the way that we think about power. Guys, it's not where he went. He went to the place where most people take hazmat suits and he took it all off and says, this is exactly where I want to be. This is exactly where I do my best work. This is exactly where I have always dwelled and intend to dwell forever because I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is not intimidated by our junk. He is not intimidated with actual reality. This is why one of the, one of the most hugest misunderstandings that those of you who are figuring out Christian faith can have is that Christianity is, I get my stuff together, I make myself acceptable and pleasing, and then I go to God and offer him my, cl my clean, lovely, wonderful, middle-class life. He don't want it. He wants your junk because he's not intimidated by it. And the reason he's not intimidated by it is he's the only human being who's ever lived who, did, who wasn't overwhelmed by it the way that you are. He's the only human being who ever lived who didn't give in to the way that we give into it. He didn't crumble underneath it. He didn't go back to what's easy and simple. He didn't himself sin and get angry and mad and frustrated. He wasn't overwhelmed by it. Instead, he overwhelmed it. So he ain't intimidated by it. And he says, I'm the, only, I'm the only place that you can go with that stuff. So come to me. Come to me outside the gate. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. This is what that's saying. The reproach that Jesus endured is, uh, in, in modern lingo, people thought Jesus was nuts, thought he's crazy, right? Like, that's what they actually thought about him. And they thought that he was just crazy enough to be a threat to everything that they held dear. And so they killed him. 
and murdered him, right? That's the reproach of Jesus. To live the way that I'm talking about living, to be faithful, to love in spite of hate, to hold fast to the, to the truth of what God says is true about a human being and human flourishing. People are going to think you're crazy. People might think that you're crazy enough to be a threat to everything that they hold dear. It says those are the moments where you need to feel the dignity that you might for the first time in your life be living exactly how God has built you to live. It's going to be really hard, and it's going to feel like you're outside the camp. How many of us live our entire lives trying to be inside the camp? I just want to be in. I just want to be acceptable. I just want to be known, right? This crazy stuff starts in, you know, second grade. I want to be in. I want to be cool. I want people to like me. I want to be in the camp. And then we watch other people who end up outside the camp, and we say, God, just not that. Just not that. Just not outside the camp. Just want to be acceptable, right? Like, I'll even take one foot in, one foot out. Like, I'll do, like, the Christian thing, but then, like, not all the way out, right? Like, I still want people to not think that um, I've completely lost it, right? It says, half in, half out, all right, you may get half Jesus. You want whole Jesus? You want your life pervaded by the presence of God? You want your life full of actual hope and joy? You want your, your life actually to be a life where peace functions all the way in. Scary, terrifying. You know who's here? Not very many people. But you know who is here? Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. That's where he is. That's where he exists. And so many of us who feel that we've never fully experienced Christ and his presence is to try all these other different means of it that honestly have more to do with us trying to cut corners and figure out, well, maybe, maybe if I just do this or this or this. And he's saying, come with me outside the camp, right? Like one of the, the primary, all this stuff that Hebrews is talking about, I was talking to someone about this this week, is I think that, that so, so many of us who have followed Jesus for a while, this is, this is my own heart, really believe at the end of the day that Christian faithfulness is paying God back. That it's like, look at everything that he did for me, the least I could do are these couple things that he asked me to do. These couple things are terrible. They're awful. They're like the worst. They're not the way you want to live. It's like, ugh, who wants to be generous? Ugh, who wants to do hospitality? Ugh, who wants to be like sexually faithful? Right? Ugh, like who wants to do that? It's the miserable stuff, but it's miserable precisely because when you do it, it shows God like how, much, how serious you are. Right, like, like I am like SEAL Team 6. Like I take it so seriously because I do the miserable stuff. Again, there's such a misunderstanding of the ethical thrust of the New Testament. The ethical thrust is do that stuff because the thing that you actually most desire, namely the presence of God himself, that's where it is. That's where it dwells. Not in some transactional, you do this and God gives you a little uh, presence of God sprinkled dust. It's like, no, that's where God's working and moving. And so if you want to be side by side with him, you want to go shoulder to shoulder, and do, you got to do the stuff he's doing. Go participate with him. Our series this fall is going to be uh, line by line working through the Lord's Prayer. And, and what I've decided to call it is participating in thy kingdom come. Because this idea of participation is so core to everything that Jesus said, is we're actually being invited into something. And this is, this is also where this text now goes. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The, the literal language there is, for we have no, no city that actually remains. Nothing in this world remains. Do you know that? 
Like, I know that that's really hard to see and believe, but you have to have a, you have to have a, a the term I want to use is a sanctified imagination. What does that mean? You have to have an imagination, um, not in the sense of being able to see things uh, that are made up, seeing make-believe, you know, be, be uh, Pixar animate or animator or whatever, right? Like, that's not what imagination means in, in the Christian world. Imagination is to see what's actually true beyond the veil of, of our limitations as people. And the scriptures so often are trying to awaken our imagination and saying, if you could see properly, if you could see what's actually true, you'd realize none of that stuff, right? Like, this is what we want to say to the second grader. Listen, what's cool in second grade, that's not going to last. Like, no one cares about the stuff that, that your friends say is important. And we want to say it to middle schoolers, and then we want to say it to high schoolers, and then I spent eight years saying it to college kids. And then you realize, oh, we're going to spend our whole lives saying this because we just don't see rightly. And we don't realize that the stuff that the world values, it just doesn't last. It doesn't matter ultimately. And there's a, there's a cosmic sense in which all the stuff of this world, cultures, what people think of you, uh, whatever, whatever, it's not lasting. It doesn't remain. It's the same word, uh, that beautiful word that Jesus uses where he says, abide in me. Abide in me, uh, stay with me, remain with me. It says, the stuff of this world, it ain't that. It doesn't abide. It doesn't remain. It says, instead, what we're looking to is, is the city that is to come. And, and really, the literal translation is the city that's about to be here. It's so imminent. It's so close. The, the world completely renewed. The presence of God pervading every inch of this world. And oh, that we would live toward that. How does one live toward that? That's what these last couple verses are. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. All right, what are the shared words there? What word do you hear in both those verses? Sacrifice, interesting, right? God's there too, but I'll, I'll okay that. Um, sacrifice. This is, this is just very cool stuff. Okay, follow me. One of the images that Hebrews is, has most been at pains to show us is that one of the things that it means at its core to be human, to be an image bearer of God, is that we were meant to be representatives of God in the world. If you've been in our church for any amount of time, hopefully you're getting very tired of hearing this from me, and I'll just keep saying it, okay? Like, this is basic understanding of what it means to be human. We're to be representatives of God in the world. We're to do in the world what God would do, and we're, we're to be who God would be if you were in the world. That's what it means to bear the image of God. That's why it has such dignity. That's why Christians, we've got to be at the forefront of anything that protects the, the, the dignity of the image of God, womb to tomb, right? Like, that's why we care about this stuff. The, the, the concept that the scriptures build around that is the idea that we're to be priests and priestesses. What, is, what does a priest or a priestess do? They, they stand between God and humanity in some meaningful way. That's what all of us were meant to be. Literally from the second page of scriptures, you, you get this idea that uh, this is right there in Genesis where it says the Lord God took uh, the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And right there, what we see is God puts, uh, 
puts Adam and then eventually Eve into the garden, gives them this task. Keep it, work it. That's, that's priestly language. It's language that shows up in the job description of a priest in the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? Like that, that doesn't, the, the vocation of humanity comes before the vocation of the priest, okay? We were all supposed to be priests and priestesses. What ends up happening though, or, or what, a, what a priest or priestess essentially does is they represent God by being a blessing to the world. That's, that's the language of blessing. Number six defines what the blessing is meant to be. This is God telling Moses what the essential blessing, what what the priests were to stand in front of the people of God and say time and time and time again. You've probably heard this before. Lord God spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, that's the priests in Israel saying, thus you shall bless the people of the Lord. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord what? Make his face shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Who's doing the blessing? The priests or God? The answer is yes. Right? He says, I want you to bless the people and through you I will bless them. I want you to speak over them. May God lift up his face to you and, and I want you to be that face in front of them. I want him to lift up his countenance. I want you to lift your hand. I want you to look people in the eye and say the blessing of God over your life. That's what a priest or priestess does. But instead of bringing blessing into the world, what what do human beings do? We bring curse into the world, right? And this is the human story again and again. Little bit of blessing, whole lot of curse. It was meant to be all blessing. One of the things that Hebrews is at pains to show us is that Jesus comes as the ultimate great high priest. Again, if you've been with us, you've heard, you've heard that again and again in Hebrews. Great high priest, great high priest, great high priest. Right? Like he perfectly stands in for God such that when we see the face of Jesus, we see the face of God. He perfectly stands in for God, thus that exactly what Jesus does in the world is the exact, the exact imprint of what God is doing in the world. And the amazing thing about Hebrews and the theology that it wants to blow our minds with is that Jesus' priestly role does not end with him. Instead, what he is doing in the life of an individual believer and in the corporate church at large is he is bringing back together, in the language of 1 Peter, a kingdom of priests, that he is renewing that vocation, that the failed human role, vocation, job description of priest, priestess is something that Jesus is restoring in and through us such that we are to be finally the priests and priestesses that creation longs for, that cultures and peoples long for. How do we do that? Now it makes sense why he calls what sound like fundamental things about Christian life, sacrifices. Through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Let us offer up a sacrifice of praise. You see what he's saying there? He's saying, be a good priest on behalf of a world that does not bless and acknowledge name, the name of God. Be the one who does. Praise him, speak his name. And we do this through Jesus. Only because of Jesus are we capable of doing this. You have absolutely no role as a priest or priestess apart from Jesus, but through him, you can offer a a sacrifice of praise to God. 
And here, yes, I think that this is talking about what we think of as worship, right? Singing on a Sunday morning in your home with the music on, but it's certainly more than that, not less than that. It's about, it's about actually being one who has the name of the only hope of this world non-awkwardly, unabashedly on your lips, more often than probably that only your own little voice inside tells you is appropriate and not weird. If we don't name the name of Jesus, Jacob's well, who will? If we, the people of God, are not willing to stand and say, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he's your only hope, who will? Who will in your home, parents? Who will in your schools? Who will in your extended families? Who will in your neighborhoods? It's not awkward. It's not strange. It's you entering the cosmic drama, the only story about the world and creation that actually matters, the only story that won't go away. We are so busy involving ourselves in 6,000 other narratives and forgetting that the only one that will last is the one that often we feel most awkward about living into and naming. Hebrews says so much more is at stake than whether you're good little Christian boys and girls. Do you hear that? He's saying the stakes are so infinitely high here. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Two simple words. Do good is uh, actually a word that's only ever used here. It's a word that's not particularly a biblical word. It's, it's more a word used out in, in wider culture at, at the time that this is written. And it's really the idea of like benevolence. It's the idea of uh, things that public figures would do on behalf of towns and cities and then be lauded for. He's saying that, that's the imitatable stuff in culture. Christians, you, you gotta outdo people in that stuff, right? Like there's a refugee crisis coming to, to central New Jersey right now. And praise God, my inbox is full of churches that are trying to rally and figure this out, right? Like we need to be out ahead of people in doing good. He says, and then share what you have, which is not a great tra translation. It's actually this very familiar word for those of you who have been around church in the Bible. It's koinonia. He says, you've got to embrace koinonia. It's beautiful. That is a thoroughly New Testament word. That's talking about the richness specifically of Christian community. You've got to immerse yourself in it. Because look, none of us are priests and priestesses as free agents. We do it as a body of priests and priestesses. That the blessing of God doesn't just flow through me to the world. It flows to us to the world. That's the primary movement here. He's saying, so you got to show up. Right? This, this is where it lands right in this moment for us as a church. We're going to try and provide a lot of opportunities for us to show up, whatever that means in this next season, safely, appropriately, and all that stuff. But he says, you got to do that. you got to do koinonia stuff because such sacrifices... You know what it means when he calls it sacrifices? What's a sacrifice? It's hard. It's costly. He says, none of this stuff's easy. He says, I'm not, I'm not going to, again, he's not selling us a bill of goods. He says, these are sacrifices. But you know what they do? They please the heart of God. He's overjoyed. This is what God wants. And again, that's not just like what I want is God to be the loudest parent on the sidelines. It's like, guys, whether we please him or not is, is again, it's the only thing that will matter ultimately, cosmically, eternally. So pleasing God is not just about like, God being like, hey, atta boy, atta girl. This is, this is what your soul was created to do. So you, again, you want to know joy? 
You want to know contentment? You want to know meaningfulness in your life? Do the things that please the heart of God and see what that interaction is like. And he's saying that's this stuff. You've got to do good. You've got to embrace koinonia. You've got to give yourself to others in community. And insofar as we do that, Jacob's well, it can audaciously be said of us. Look, Jesus was our great high priest in a once-for-all, unreproducible un way. But if he is reproducing, in some sense, priests and priestesses, in light of what he has done, here's what that means. Insofar as we embrace some of these basic challenges that the author of Hebrews is giving us, it can audaciously be said about you and about people as imperfect, as broken as me, that people actually experience God through us. That people see the face of God through our everyday mundane faithfulness. I had someone say to me this week, someone, someone new to our community, that a, a former leader in, I'll tell you who it is, I don't care, I'll embarrass him, Sante. Um, some of you know Sante. Sante was a long-term intern here. Uh, he went to be a missionary in Italy, going through some really, really hard health stuff with his wife. Anyway, I won't get into all that. But what this person said is one of the most important things in them coming to Christian faith was just being around Sante for a while and realizing, I see the face of Jesus in this guy. The stuff that I read about Jesus landed in 2000, you know, 21st century New Jersey. Man, that imperfectly, right? Like, Sante's not a perfect guy. I'm not lifting up Sante. They didn't say, I saw, I saw the, the face of Sante and that's all I ever want to see. No, do you see how they see through his faithfulness to something far more important than you or me? Oh, that that would be said of us 150 times over, that people regularly experience the grace of Jesus. Here's the thing, though. We can only be a blessing. This is the last thing I'll say. We can only be a blessing if we understand the way in which we have first been blessed. God goes first in this. He is the originator and source of blessing. We are not sources of blessing. We are conduits of blessing. And to be a source of blessing is something only he can do. To be a conduit means I receive it first and then give it. This is why we end every single one of our times of teaching at the Lord's table. This is a place of blessing. Go ahead and, and take it out with me now. It's on the night uh, before he was arrested, betrayed, crucified. Jesus took elements at the table. And you know what he did to them? Does anybody remember what he did to them? We don't normally say this in community. He blessed them. 